Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, or at this point, a priest and a rabbi explore chapter after chapter of priesting material all about the building of the temple, which is helping our listeners fall asleep at night. It's helpful for me because, you know, the uh, uh, sewage line underneath my house has totally collapsed and I feel prepared to do the work myself now. Oh, <laughs> that's good. I'm very sorry about your house, though. No. My goodness. They don't teach you in rabbinical school, but you, you read Exodus enough. You can, you can do these basic repairs. Uh, are you comparing the temple to a sewage line? The temple must have had sewage lines, right? You got to think it did. I mean, where were the priests going to the bathroom? Okay, well, this has already gone way too deep for me. But uh, before we go any further, we are joined today by Shira Berkowitz. And Shira, you are uh, the social justice staff person. Uh, what is your exact title? I'm the director of advocacy and communications at the synagogue that Daniel works at. Right. Okay. Advocacy and communications. Does that mean that those are kind of two separate positions put together for budgetary reasons, or does that mean that you're communicating about advocacy all of the time? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> ideally, uh, in a lot of, I guess in a lot of social justice organizations or organizations that do this type of work outside of the religious realm, the the two positions are the same. So the advocacy individual does advocacy communications. Mm -hmm. And I feel like inside of our organization for budgetary reasons, it is two roles combined into one. That, that seems fair. Yeah. That seems fair. Yeah. Okay. And is it common for synagogues to have an advocacy staff person? It's not. We're kind of the lay leaders in this realm for, for like the the rest of synagogues and a a lot of churches also. Yeah. If we weren't the first in the Jewish world, we were close to the first to have someone like this. Yeah. Yeah. And this position has existed for a long time at your synagogue. Yes. Over a decade now. Yeah. Over a decade. I'm the third. Well, that is really impressive. Third. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're the third. Um, The reason I ask is in the Episcopal church, we have this order of clergy, the deacons who are unpaid, um, but advocacy and social justice are kind of their bailiwick. That's what they do. Um, I often find myself wondering how much we can really prioritize those things if, if we're not willing to pay the people doing them. Um, but that just that is just the case. That's just how things work out right now. But in the Jewish world, in order to have that, it would have to be a, a specially created position like yours, Shira. I, uh, I don't. I don't feel that way. I think that um, a lot of my colleagues in the Jewish or interfaith world are the clergy. Um, but I think that it's even more um, intricate if policy is going to be part of that advocacy work that the role be a little bit parceled out so that some of that social justice work is a lot of the role of what clergy already do. And I think that as soon as it crosses the lines of policy, it just becomes a time management issue really. And then, separating it by personnel just helps get the job done differently. So we share a little mm-hmm. bit about the work that you do share, will you? Uh, yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of like part organizer, part um, overseeing the advocacy agenda of what our congregation would like to prioritize. And, and what is that right now? Uh, we always prioritize healthcare. Uh, and then the state of Missouri, that looks like, um, Medicaid expansion and access, as well as 
uh, women's reproductive rights, and specifically in St. Louis, um, working on closing that um, awful gap of infant and maternal mortality death rates. Yeah. Um, and then okay. we also look at like gun, sensible gun laws, gun access. Um, I'm like totally losing my That's a lot. Uh, racial justice. So were you yeah, a lot of racial, a lot of racial, racial justice, justice work, um, really the, the experience of the death of Michael Brown of a blessed memory, uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement that emerged out of really Ferguson, our next door neighbors yeah. here, uh, because we're, we're in the city of St. Louis with our congregation, uh, right. really transformed this community. Would you say that's true, Shira? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you also work in Ferguson still? I, I'm looking up your biography online and see you listed as, well, maybe it's a different Shira Berkowitz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Are there no, more than that one? Is, that is true. Yes. I'm an, <laughs> I'm an adjunct faculty member. Um, so I teach at the community college that's in Ferguson. Okay. Yeah, I totally forgot. I didn't know that. Well, it's summer. Yeah, it's summer. So you haven't thought about it for I, a while. I have two more weeks before. <laughs> yes, but then you'll be you'll be right back to it. Yes. So you know, I I know for a lot of people in a lot of congregations, their response upon hearing. Uh, that you're doing work with racial justice, you're doing work to get. Medicaid expansion, for instance, yeah. they'd say, why is a congregation doing any of that work? Why is a religious institution in that business? What, what's your thought on that? I think that religious institutions have the biggest um, thumbprint on, on access to people and that we reach communities differently than any other organization does. People come to churches, people come to synagogues like they don't participate in other communities. And so because we have that tight-knit space, we have an opportunity to organize um, inside of the message that we're already preaching and teaching and the values that we're living together as a community. And it's an opportunity to do the work that we believe in. And so since we already congregate together or believe in the message of the reason that we organize through religion um, and because people get together often, whether it's religiously or whether it's through religion for an event, um, it's the largest opportunity in the country to use as a platform to organize. And then we say here at uh, CRC that CRC is the name of our congregation, Central Reform Central Congregation. Reform congregation, yeah. That we are, when we do the work of advocacy, we're praying with our feet, and I truly believe that. So, like, if we're working on bridging that gap in Medicaid expansion, then that is doing the same work as we would be doing as we pray on a Saturday morning or a Friday night. Right. I mean, I, in part, that's what gave me pause when you were saying that many of your colleagues are clergy, which I believe I want to be clear about that. And I, uh, I know Mike Kinman, who's the, uh, the, the dean of the cathedral there, you know, is, uh, is definitely doing all that work. And so are many other good people. But I also know that 
uh, for many people, part of leading a congregation means walking a very uh, fine and careful line uh, between offending people from very different points of view. Um, so, you know, I mean, at the, the church I serve, the deacon recently preached a, a very strongly worded sermon, kind of decrying Trump's immigration policies. The rector had kind of an out where he was able to say, you know, that's what a deacon is supposed to do, you know, because he was getting some guff from the 25% or so of the congregation who are fairly conservative and we're not happy with that sermon. So um, it seems to me like sometimes it's good to have unique roles, you know, where one person is kind of trying to hold together the center of that group that could do great work together as long as it doesn't fall apart or fly apart over division uh, while another person is kind of pushing towards that work more and more. Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I would also assert that we are a really unique synagogue and that our politics are very strongly understood by our membership. And that doesn't mean that we don't get a lot of pushback. Cause I think that whenever we take a policy standpoint or gather together as a board to discuss and debate how we're going to approach the strategy for a policy, we, we do have a lot of pushback, but we don't have nearly the amount of pushback that I see in other congregations that, that don't necessarily talk about politics in the way that we do, or that are willing to do the work, say, of go out and collect petitions for a ballot initiative, or are willing to put their name behind um, the verbiage of a, a policy that they want their representatives to move forward with. Right, right. Yeah, well, um, so it's kind of amazing that you're on for this episode where we're talking mostly about buildings, <laughs> particularly about the building of the tabernacle. But it does lead, you know, one of my constant questions, at least uh, for the Christian church, and I, I don't know if this is true of Judaism, but because of denominationalism in America, we have a lot of moldering buildings, right? Like you can go into a small town and you can be on the town square and you'll see four churches there, each of which is from a mainline congregation um, and each of which is maybe drawing like 40 people on a Sunday morning. You know, so they have these buildings that were built for hundreds that are sitting empty and are financially neglected and falling apart. And, um, it seems ridiculous. Like it seems it's an accident of history, but also the question is, can one leverage those buildings to do good? Like you were saying, Sherry, you know, if nothing else, these can be gathering places, uh, community centers, um, places where people come together to kind of work through issues, uh, argue, go out, do good. But maybe that is that not true in Judaism? No, I, I think that's totally that? true. And actually, you know, it's interesting because this congregation that we're a part of, Central Reform, uh, was originally started and had in its charter that we were not allowed to build a building. Uh, that in, this was in the early uh -huh. 80s, that in a time and an era of severe homelessness, particularly in the city of St. Louis, uh, not that this has necessarily gotten better over the last 30 plus years, um, that it was a Shonda, that it was a crime against humanity at some level to put dollars into buildings when there were human beings on the street. Uh, 
And so actually we're, they're doing a little bit of construction outside of my office. So we're in a different room right now. And I'm looking out the window at the first Unitarian church, which is where I grew up. Uh, because I was a part of this congregation as a kid and we didn't have a building. We met in the basement of the first Unitarian church. Um, huh. Though I would say now we have a building that's pretty full and pretty full of advocacy. I mean, every day there is something else happening here, whether it's a group organizing that's renting out the space or uh, we have a walk-in uh, food pantry and professional clothing pantry uh, right at the entryway to our congregation. So we're constantly getting a flow of people for that. And uh, it's nice. So last winter, um, our largest homeless shelter in St. Louis closed. And um, that kind of like left this very large issue in the city of like, where do we, what do we do with all of the homeless population? Where do they go if there's no shelter with beds? Um, and the city felt like that was not their issue to solve as quickly as maybe the religious community felt like it was their issue to solve. And so a lot of the churches opened up their gymnasiums or whatever they could do to temporarily solve the issue, but the buildings were not zoned to keep people overnight, to have people there long-term stays, to have bathrooms for people. Um, so it became something that I thought about a lot, like what, how does a building function to serve through advocacy if there are so many regulations and limits on how a building can function and what is the role mm -hmm. of the faith community in these buildings. If even in the best intentions, it can't, it can't meet those needs. And we're about to like butt up to that again, coming this winter and run into those same problems. Like so. Yeah. Yeah. That's really tragic. Yeah. And we do we have these like very empty buildings or buildings that yeah, are very large, but the communities don't take them up 24 right. hours a day. Right. Mm -hmm. Type of, right. of an issue. Just a, just a side. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's absolutely right. Like, uh, but you know, you can see kind of the public interest in not letting just anyone, you know, say, yes, come in use our building. Uh, you know, I, I was at a church here in, Columbus where they used to have like homeless people be able to come in at all hours and sleep and, and famously, well, infamously somebody was murdered. Like one of the homeless people was murdered while being there. And so you could see why a municipality would say we want to protect people. You know, we don't want kind of generalized do goodism, uh, to, to lead to tragedy. Um, but at the same time, you know, how protected are people when they're exposed to the elements and, and have no place to go? No, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, uh, um, there's a famous story in the Bible. I think it's in Deuteronomy and in, uh, the Talmud about the, uh, body that is found outside of the city gates. If you find a body of someone who has died and it's outside of the gates of a city, the question was, who's responsible, right? And because remember, we're talking about an era where if you're outside of the gates of the city, you are really in right. no man's land. You're not in civilization anymore. And the rabbis say what you have to do is you measure uh, the distance between that body and all of the nearest cities and whichever city 
uh, is closest actually has to offer a sin sacrifice as if they had murdered this person. Uh, which is pretty radical when you consider that right. this isn't a human being that's within their city. And that, that's actually, there's a whole story in the Talmud where the rabbis object and say, uh, you know, okay, I would understand this if this was a citizen of the city. Uh, and it became, it becomes this sort of fundamental idea that we have responsibility to all life. And it's not just those people who we consider us. Right. And I mean, now it's hard to imagine just the idea that you would be so responsible for one of your citizens that you would offer some sacrifice, let alone somebody you don't know. Right. Uh, I think once again, it's one of those moments where the communal nature of Judaism is, is just highlighted, uh, particularly in comparison to the world we live in now. In the uh, early eighties, Israel was in a series of, many ongoing wars with Lebanon and Hezbollah who sort of are Lebanon and sort of are something different than Lebanon. Um, and there's famously what's known as the massacres of Sabra and Shatila, uh, where, uh, Israel had occupied this area. The, the Christians in Lebanon and the Muslims in Lebanon were in a civil war and Israeli guards were guarding the Muslim population there. And at a somewhat coordinated moment, the Israeli army pulled back from the Muslim areas and the Christian Lebanese came in and massacred them. Wow. Um, really, really brutal and one of the dark, nasty spots in Israeli history. But so there was a big, uh, uh, obviously outside of Israel too, but within Israel, there was this reckoning. Uh, the Lebanon War is sometimes called Israel's Vietnam, hmm. right? There was nothing... It was incomplete. It felt like a loss. And it was the first time where a war didn't feel like a clean good guys and bad guys kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interestingly, the government absolved themselves of responsibility and then started another commission, which included religious leaders. And the religious leaders came back and quoted this story and said, yeah, maybe you don't have legal responsibility. Maybe international law says that Israel is not responsible for this. But Jewish law is very clear. We are responsible. We are to blame. We are at fault. Wow. Um, and it was one of these really powerful moments that, unfortunately, I can't imagine happening today. But Same, but wow. Yeah. 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 yeah that's amazing. Okay, well, we have been talking for 20 minutes and have yet to crack open the scripture. So, I so know, as we, we get do that, <laughs> as we get more and more of this priestly content, we're getting there. Um, okay, hold on, but as long as we're avoiding, I have one more question for Shira. Uh, as long as I've known you, you've been a seeker of justice. I've known Shira since she was, I don't know, 12 years old or something. Um, I was a very, I was a very mature 15 then, <laughs> offering her wisdom. Uh, in fact, famously when I was, I don't know, 17 and Shira was 15 and we worked at summer camp together, uh, my dog needed to be let out and I didn't, I didn't think the fact that Shira didn't have a driver's license should be any impediment. So I just gave her my keys and she went and, you know, she's still here. I figure it was fine. Yes. Um, but so my, my question for you, uh, how is being a Jew whether you want to think of that as an identity or faith or a community or a culture or history or whatever, however you conceive of that, how has that changed your work? I don't mean literally that you're inside of a synagogue, but what's the connection to you between being a Jew and 
the justice work that is the core of your life? Wow. It's a really heavy question. It's a heavy question. Like, we do heavy questions here. I don't know. I mean, I started doing, I, I think I started doing or finding the work that I do in Judaism through song leading um, and through teaching that way. And that led me into understanding the way that I was an artist and am an artist. Um, this is an incredibly talented visual artist. Oh, so is Carl though. Oh, nice. We totally should have talked about that, particularly yeah. with the building of all this stuff. Oh, there we go. <laughs> it might come up. I don't know. So I feel like what I started doing as uh, when I was young and teaching through music, I found a passion in doing through visual art. And somehow everything that I wanted to explain to people was, um, was about seeing the otherness in humanity and bringing us together by closing the gap, if I could just reveal that, if I could make you see that we were, there was some kind of familiarity, then that would erase the otherness. Um, and so I would do, I would create um, like, like experiences through performance or um, through art exhibitions where I would reveal stories or um little bits of culture that people that wanted to experience in an art museum would then um, hopefully find inside of their vocabulary of familiarity, if that makes sense. And I started to recognize that what I wasn't doing was like having a vocabulary of cultures, but was really just my experiences of being Jewish in the world. And so I think the more that I started to understand that my experiences of being Jewish and traversing the world that way was also um, a desire of seeking social justice in the world. And as soon as I made the, the switch of um, being an artist and making art Jewishly and starting to talk about making art Jewishly um, and being in advocacy and policy in a Jewish world that just started making more sense. Hmm. Um, so I think that's how I, that's, that was my journey and how I see, I, I don't see it as very different, but the way that um, I guess the most important thing to me is that I think that we can all make a difference if the way that we have conversations with other people is just by ex exposing the thing that people are afraid of so that it becomes something that is inside of something that they're very comfortable with, which I explain is a, a familiarity. And then, and then, and then we erase the otherness between mm. us as human beings. Seeing the image of the divine in the other. Yeah. Huh. And so that's my version of advocacy. Hmm. Beautiful. You know, what I like so much about that is it plays directly into the first midrash we'll have. And so, well, maybe it doesn't, not directly, but there's a lot of looking and mirroring and seeing and understanding the other. Oh, that, that was a very good transition there. Very smooth. I don't think anyone would have noticed it until I pointed it out. Yeah. Well, 
uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, I, I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> so smooth. Yeah. You do the smooth, I'll do the awkward, okay, okay. it'll work out. But no, I, I'm, I'm worried about moving too far away from the profundity of, of what you were just saying, Sure, I don't I don't want to subtract from that by my, my need to get us into the no, text. No, 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 okay, good. good. But uh, deeply heard and deeply taken. Thank you. Um, so can we start into this text? I should tell you, dear listeners, that our first midrash doesn't come till verse eight. So I would propose we do a, a, a very quick read through of the first seven verses, which are still just extravagantly repetitious. Um, and, and then pause after verse eight for this really kind of lovely, strange midrash from Rashi, which will help us ask all sorts of questions. Sure. You want to read for us? You straight read it. Read it. We might interrupt you, but probably not because we've heard these details before. Okay. He made the altar for burnt offerings of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide, square and three cubits high. So we got to point out here, by the way, that that's not a square. (sighs) Did you just promise not to interrupt her and immediately interrupt her? No, actually, I think I promised two in a row. Okay, okay. I'm going to interrupt again. Right, five by five by three is not a cube. These things are not a square. Cubit. Yes. Nobody said that was... Right, it's... Yeah, yeah, but I guess the five by five is a square. Okay. Cube three is separate. Yeah, okay. He made horns for it on its four corners, the horns being of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with copper. See, she's already getting that you just got to ignore and keep going. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pails, the scrippers, (laughs) the basins, the flesh hooks, and the five pans, and made all these utensils. Fire pans. Fire pans, and made all these utensils of copper. He made for the altar a a grating of meshwork in copper extending below under the ledge to its middle. He cast four rings at the four corners of the copper gratings, as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with copper. And he inserted the poles into the rings on the side walls of the altar to carry it by them. He made it hollow of boards. He made the lever of copper and its stand of copper from the mirrors of the woman who performed tasks at the, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay. And here we get our midrash. Um, so this is really one of the more famous Midrashim. I knew this one as a kid. I knew this, studied it in rabbinical school. Uh, so let, let's read it on its own uh, because I found myself always liking it before and finding it fi- vaguely disturbing this year when I read it. Uh, huh. He made the basin of copper out of the mirrors of the assembled women. Uh, so that's the line we're riffing off of, and this is from Midrash Tanhuma that Rashi picked up. The daughters of Israel had mirrors in which they looked to adorn themselves. These two, they did not refrain from donating to the making of the Mishkan. Moses disdained these mirrors, since their purpose is to awaken lust. Said God to Moses, accept them, for these are more beloved to me than everything else. Through these, the women begot hosts of children in Egypt. When their men were exhausted by hard labor, they would go and bring them food and drink and feed them. They would take along the mirrors, and each would look at herself in the mirror together with her husband and tease him, saying, look, I'm more beautiful than you thus awakening desire in her husband and cohabitating with him and conceiving and giving birth there. As it is written from the Song of Songs, under the apple tree, I roused you. Okay, so 
you initially like that because it's sex positive because like what what was it that first had you on its side and what is it that now disturbs you about it you know i think there's something beautiful about this idea of resistance first of all right that these these mirrors in this action that's being presented right that that the women would do this is very much resistance to oppression, resistance to slavery, resistance to a decree that called for the destruction of a people. Um, right. So for fecundity is the answer to genocide. Yeah. Yeah. And simply just taking the things and the resources that we had in using them in the most, right. I mean, to live when they are trying to kill you is the greatest form of resistance. Um, but you know, recently there's been a, a whole controversy, uh, in the Jewish world for, for decades, really, uh, you found a certain type of Jewish sociologist and a certain type of Jewish communal leader, I would say also, uh, who their main issue has been the decline. Some would say the inevitable decline, uh, of Jews. In America, and we know this. We know that there are forty-five thousand fewer human beings every year who identify as Jews in the United States. Um, huge percentage of this is about the thinning of Jewish identity generationally, at least outside of the fundamentalist Orthodox world. Uh, but it's also about the fact that liberal Jews, who make up ninety percent of all American Jewry, uh, don't have a lot of kids. Uh, we tend to have kids older. Uh, certainly than we used to, right? It's all the same things as other populations. Uh, we uh, uh, certainly as a general rule are uh, very accepting of LGBTQ population, uh, at least uh, compared to many other religious communities. Uh, and all the other things that go along with living in a post-industrial nation in terms of declining birth rates, uh, particularly amongst uh, an educated subpopulation. Uh, and so you find these primarily men who for years have been saying, well, that's the problem. Jewish women need to have more babies and they need to have them at a younger age. And maybe the head sociologist of this movement, one of the most well-regarded sociologists of American Jewry, uh, Stephen Cohen, uh, it just came out a number of women bravely stepped forward to say that he has sexually harassed them. Uh, and a couple of women who have said he sexually assaulted them, uh, over the last 30 years. And I'm not sure that we can disconnect a culture that says that men have rights over women's bodies from a textual tradition that says that men have rights over women's bodies. Well, I, can I interrupt to say I agree with what you're saying. I'm not sure that's what this midrash is saying, though. Uh, and, and Rashi's telling it is the women who go out to seduce their men, and the men are exhausted. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, this is a story, this midrash, written by men about women whose role is fundamentally to ensure reproduction. And maybe that's not fair. And maybe I am just in a cynical perspective right now. Uh, it could be. Yeah, <laughs> it could be that you are. Um, because, I mean, 
the fact that the women have agency has got to matter, right? Even so, it is written by Rashi. It is written by a man, but you you could see him writing this story in a completely opposite way, where the you know the men are like, we need to make sure that there are enough of us, so our poor exhausted wives have just had they just have to put out. Um, and we will, you know, we will put them in their place by having them gaze into these mirrors so that they know that they're nothing more than objects of, uh, beauty and sexual satisfaction. <laughs> you know, like you could do a kind of, uh, Revlon or American cosmetic company version of this. Yeah. Um, but that's not what this is here. The women have agency. And to me, that says something. Now, I, I don't know what that says. Um, and it's beautiful, I guess it's, the idea that these mirrors are melted down and form something essential uh, uh, for the temple, right? For the Mishkan. Right. And, and uh, you know, in some ways, Moses is presented as a hateful one because um, he is almost implying that anything the women have to offer is not going to be pure or acceptable enough. Right. So it's kind of a counter to to a type of misogyny, which I think we hear about very often, um, which is, you know, oh, women, they're just full of lust and desire. And why would we take anything from them? Hmm. So anyway, uh, you know, I, I saw Naomi Wolf speak in college. It was a transformative experience. I don't I don't think she is always right about everything, but it did, you know, in my own kind of. Uh, puritanical uh, pre predisposition, it, it upset that balance and made me realize that perhaps, you know, certain received ideas I had about like sexual purity were mistaken or prejudicial. So, and anyway, that's that's why I'm laying out my reaction. But sure, this is two men talking about this. It doesn't seem right. So, <laughs> have you uh, have you a thought? No, I don't. I don't quite understand. Maybe I don't quite understand what this is in here for. Like, why are we debating this right now? This is a midrash on the line we just read. I know. Fill me in more. What do you mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm like so lost on what's happening yes okay yeah i think it, it i agree it's a little confusing sense that it's jumping back and forth so in exodus 38 8 we've got this line that says he made the laver of copper and its stand of copper from the mirrors of the women yeah. who perform tasks at the entrance to the tent of meeting so the we, question we, then is we're building this mishkan and these women are sitting here with mirrors of lust so we're building the mishkan yeah. And the women's the women bring their mirrors that are then melted down to form this. But those mirrors had been used 40, 50 years before this in Egypt during this time of resistance when the Egyptians were coming out and working the Jewish men literally to death uh, and killing these baby boys who were born. And so there was, the tradition says that basically uh, sexual relationships ended at this point. And so... Right. Ended. It just wasn't happening in the same way that actually we know that, um, right. It, sexual relationships are one of the first things that disappeared in the concentration camps in the Holocaust. Not entirely. Um, but right. It's one of the first human drives that disappears. And so here what's happening is Midrash Tan and Rashi's picking it up is imagining, uh, you know, if that's the case, how, 
how was there another generation to travel through the wilderness? And they're saying there was another generation because these women who would spend all day presumably working on their own while men were off building things for the Egyptians as slaves, that these women valiantly, at least in the, the wording of this Midrash, uh, would then primp and pamper themselves uh, to look beautiful, go out to the fields, bring these mirrors and use the mirrors to flirt with their husbands. So as to get their exhausted husbands, uh, to engage in sexual activity that would lead to another generation. Well, that's disgusting. Okay. That makes total sense. <laughs> I see that. Why? Okay. So this whole thing is based off of how do we repopulate people so that then they can wander in the desert? I, you it's know, like, at least that's one read it's of this. making it – there's this midrash in here to say like, well, obviously there has to be another generation. So let's figure out how people saw women as beautiful in this time because obviously they're too tired to work. So then that makes sense of why you would say like, well, obviously a man, Rashi, is sitting here writing this from a man's point of view. In imagining that – right, absolutely this is women being portrayed as heroes. That's, that's what this is, but it's a man's idea of what women's heroism is, right? That a woman's heroism is fundamentally found in her womb. Yeah, but that's what the, what the whole Torah says. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, does it? So that's the oh, only like model for things. heroism like, for women in the Torah? Yeah, that's the whole model of, for women in the Torah. It certainly becomes one of the dominant understandings of women in at least traditional and Orthodox Jewish settings. Yeah. I I do feel like it takes a very long time for women to be seen as having another role. Women are seen as human. Yeah. I mean, in some ways this goes back to what you were saying before, Absolutely. right? Um, yeah. So, so they've been othered for forever. Um, for yes. forever, which makes perfect sense why there has to be this little midrash in here to make sense. Do you think yeah. it's explaining their, their othering or their otherness and celebrating that, or is it um, working against that othering and otherness in some way? Um, I mean, it would make sense that Rashi would want to celebrate it because in some sense it may, it would make, it makes humanity more tolerable from that perspective to see women as participatory and having this role at this time. Yeah. So, right. So they, men and women may be othered from each other, but um, like the Moses reaction is to, at least in this midrash is to reject the otherness of women and the way I'm reading it, which might be wrong, but is that Rashi's reaction is to celebrate. So just a clarification here. This is from Midrash Tenchuma, which is an earlier collection of Midrashim. Okay. And Rashi is pulling this from the Midrash Tenchuma, from this collection of Midrash. And good. he brings it into his own commentary. Good. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good clarification. You know, it's such a, it's so interesting to me to, to be part of this conversation because uh, like women in, Christianity, there are, there's such a, 
there's such a divergent way of looking at things, right? Like you can go to scripture and find incredibly powerful women who are leaders. Um, and that sense of otherness has kind of disappeared, right? You can find that in the book of Acts. Um, you can find that in the gospels for that matter. You can find that in Mary Magdalene, who's the first witness to the resurrection and arguably the, the, most important of the disciples. Um, but then a little bit later you can find, you know, women should be silent in church, you know, women should cover their heads, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this battle, this argument within the text between different views of women, which I, I don't know, sure. Am I going too far to say that they're really kind of different views of otherness to, to use the language that you've used, you know, this, this desire to other women or this desire not to yeah, seem no, to be exactly right. This line though sticks out to me where like, uh, it seems though that God is being pretty clear here where God's saying like you to Moses, just accept like to Moses, yeah. Moses disdains this concept and God yeah. is being very clear about accepting it because however these children come about, that's the most important thing. So it's challenging, but then Moses and, or any other man can't just absolve from this mirror or can't then just skip the mirror and look at women as being the most necessary right, or the most celebrated thing. Or like how, right? Or do we not know yet that God's word matters more? Or like yeah. why is this object, the mirror, needing to be in place first to say like, oh, wait, I should celebrate women not as this object. I need to celebrate children or I need to, children are very important or like whatever the, I don't know. So that they're like, there's that very directly told line in there. That's a conversation before, before the rest of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like one, we're running out of time if we're even going to finish this chapter, but, but two, we haven't really touched on this question of, groups feeling threatened and, and feeling that the way not to feel threatened is to have a lot of children and when that's appropriate and when that isn't appropriate. I mean, I, I'll just say like, it's not only Jews who are feeling that in America, it's, it's tons of other people. Um, and you know, the, the people I like to listen to would say, well, the solution is not to worry so much about your own progeny, you know, the solution is to invite in the other to allow whatever kind of change will happen because the other has come into your community. And it's, it's really the community that's your progeny. You know, it's uh, the people that are here who will be your descendants, even if you have no children. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that works within Judaism. You know, I, well, I come out of a tradition of uh, David Hartman of a blessed memory who has a teaching about, we may have talked about this, months and months ago, Auschwitz or Sinai. Um, but his basic idea was yeah, we have. Yep. that there are two mindsets. There's the mindset and the reaction that is necessary when you are at Auschwitz, when you are maybe in the frame of this Midrash, when you are uh, 
a slave and an oppressed slave uh, who there's a potential genocide against. That, that at that point, the only ethical thing that you can do is survive by whatever means is necessary. That survival itself becomes your ethical goal. But the moment you're no longer at Auschwitz, the moment you're no longer in existential danger, the real danger becomes that instead of having a Sinai perspective, instead of having a perspective that says, what is it that we can build? Who do we want to be? What is the aspirational vision for our society? That instead you still focus on survival as being the means and the end. Um, and I wonder if that's not a big part of this. I mean, to me, one of the problems of many contemporary American Jewish communities is that they seem to exist only so that they can continue to exist without a stronger sense of purpose or mission in the world other than just survival. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with many, if not most, Christian communities as well, is that they've forgotten what they were originally called to do and have just become kind of self-facing, navel-gazing, um, self-perpetuating organizations. So, Country clubs without the golf. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Country clubs with some ineffectual prayer. Um, okay. Uh, is everyone okay if we, if we plow on through this? Yeah, let's um, go. You want to read for us? Yeah, I'll, I'll read for a while and uh, interrupt, but realize we only have about 15 minutes left. So interruptions, you know, keep them to a minimum. Um, and he made the court for the southern side. The hangs of the court were twisted linen, a hundred cubits. Their posts twenty, and their sockets twenty of bronze. The hooks of the posts and their bands were silver. And for the northern side, a hundred cubits. Their posts twenty, and their sockets twenty of bronze. The hooks of the posts and their bands were silver. And for the western side, hangings of fifty cubits. Their posts ten, and their sockets ten. The hooks of the posts and their bands were silver. And to the very east, fifty cubits, hangings of fifteen cubits to the flank. Their post three, and their socket three. And for the other flank, on each side of the gate of the court, hangings of fifteen cubits, their post three, and their socket three. All the hangings of the court, all around, were twisted linen. And the sockets for the posts were bronze. The hooks of the posts, and their band silver, and the overlay of their top silver. And they were banded with silver, all the posts of the court. And the screen of the gate of the court was embroiderer's work, indigo and purple and crimson and twisted linen. And it was 20 cubits in length and a height and the width of five cubits over against the hangings of the court. And their posts four and their sockets four of bronze. Their hooks were silver and the overlay of their tops and their bands silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around. Okay, pausing there for a second. These. Uh, If only just to say that this is where the rabbinic tradition divides. Uh, these readings, that this is the end right there with verse 20 of one week's Torah reading uh, and starting with verse 21 ah. through the end of the book of Exodus, uh, we get the next week's Torah reading. Uh, so we, we don't get chapter divisions in the Torah. We get uh, much larger divisions, usually three, four or five chapters uh, together. Uh, uh-huh. And this is where the rabbis uh, understood the break in subjects, uh, to be happening. And you can kind of hear it in the language, um, because now it's going to stop describing cubits and hangings. Um, 
it goes on. These are the reckonings of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the covenant that were reckoned by the word of Moses, the service of the Levites, in the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest, and Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had charged Moses. And with him was Aholiab, your favorite, Aholiab, son of Ahizamach, from the tribe of Dan, woodcarver and designer and embroiderer in indigo and in purple and in crimson and in linen. All the gold that was fashioned for the task in every task of the sanctuary, the elevation offering gold was 29 talents or 730 shekels by the sanctuary shekel. And the silver reckoned from the community was a hundred talents or 1,775 shekels by the sanctuary shekel. A bequa to the head, half a shekel by the sanctuary shekel for each who underwent the reckoning from 20 years old and above for 600,000, 3,550. And the hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the curtain. A hundred sockets for a hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Okay, so now we're back to sockets and stuff. And from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the posts and overlaid their tops and banded them. And the elevation offering bronze was 70 talents or 2,400 shekels. And he made with it the sockets for the entrance of the tent of meeting and the bronze. I really think you should have done this without taking a breath. I would have liked to. (laughs) I feel like I have. Uh, And the bronze grating that belongs to it and all the furnishings of the altar and the sockets of the court all around and the sockets for the gate and the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. Whew. It really, like, I I don't think I'd realized. I've, so I've read the entirety of the Torah, I can't tell you how many times, particularly, you know, you go to synagogue every week and you hear it over the course of yeah. the year. And I don't think I had ever realized until we did this project just how much of Exodus is nonstop priestly content. But you, you think of Exodus as being the book with all the drama. And certainly right. we have had a lot of drama here, right? Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we never, before three, four weeks ago, would read a block of text more than a verse or two without talking. No, we wouldn't, but we've heard all this before. <laughs> that's, the, that's the other thing. It is that extravagant repetition, you know. Uh, if we don't know how the tabernacle was set up by now, then we really have not been paying attention. I, I know. Like I said, I feel capable of repairing the sewer in my basement. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Um but I, you know, what I'm always grateful for is the fact that uh, we always resist the priestly material in some way. <laughs> Does that mean that we're just, you and I, Daniel, and are just not all that interested in it, or are we just being kind to guests like Shira, who would probably, yeah, jump out a window? If we exactly. <laughs> no, right? Because priestly material raises some real questions of why should we still study these things. Right. Why is this still of any significance? Um, yeah. And, and we get into some of the content, like uh, you get into Leviticus and you have all of the, you know, the uh, scabs and the growths and the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Not syphilis. That's a different thing. Uh, uh, what's the one where your body, what do they, leprosy. Right. Although <laughs> leprosy, different than syphilis. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, they both cause sores. Uh, where... The rabbis take this and they totally reinterpret it and they say that all of the leprosy, whether you're talking about the leprosy of the walls or of the human body, are the result of uh, evil gossip, malicious gossip. Uh, That makes sense. But 
that's a redemption of that idea. We don't ha- like, how do we redeem this stuff? I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, the one thing I can think of, and sure, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of buildings. So, and, and maybe even justice, I don't know. Um, I have, within the last five years, I've been involved with two churches. One uh, was kind of falling apart and, you know, some people cared, like there were caretakers of it, but there was also like a, a cardboard box that had been taped over a drinking fountain for something like two decades, you know? So not, there was not like a pristine Martha Stewart level of involvement with beauty, you know? Um, the church I'm at now is a historical church, and there is that Martha Stewart pristine level of involvement with beauty. I, I like that Martha um, Stewart is your epitome yeah, of too. what beauty is here. That's good. <laughs> well, you know, she wants to make everything look nice. Um, and and I frankly, I appreciate that. Like if I come into somebody's home and it's a mess, I feel uncomfortable. And I kind of think of it as an act of of host charity charity and and nice hosting you know that you you make things look nice for your guests um but that is of course simply because i am come from the long line of anal retentive germans (laughs) (laughs) like there's no ethic or moral involved there (laughs) yeah well thanks um but but what i'm saying is it feels like this priestly material is set up out of this real concern for making everything perfect and nice for god um, and that we still approach a lot of our buildings in that way, you know, that we, we want them to be well cared for and nice for God and for the people who enter them. Um, but there's a real tension there with, is that where you put your resources? You know, is it really so bad to have a cardboard box over a drinking fountain or at another church I knew in Chicago, you know, to have like the carpet taped down with duct tape if all your resources are going to justice and, and service. Um, and, and I don't, I, I don't know, like I go back and forth, you know, I'm of two minds and I've never really decided this for myself. Like, what do we owe the people who inhabit the building, um, and are caretakers of it? And what do we owe the people outside of the building who, uh, are maybe disturbed by us taking too much care of it? At what point does a tabernacle become a problem for for loving the stranger or the other. You know, I'm reminded that in the Talmud, they talk about what are the requirements for having a synagogue? And, you know, do you have to have a Torah? Do you have to have uh, beautiful objects? Do you have to have art? Do you have to have all of these things? And they eventually decide that there is only one requirement for a space that is to serve as a synagogue. And that is that it has to have a window so that you can look outside and see the world as it is and not just exist within your own space. Ooh. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yeah, that really is. Wow, I love that. Yeah, that is <laughs> fantastic. Where Where is that in the Talmud? Uh, I can get <laughs> you a reference. Okay, good, good. That'll, that'll preach, as we say in this biz. Well, that is excellent. Uh, I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, Shira, thank you so much for joining us Of course, us today. thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to plug, any kind of current project or concern that you would like people to be uh, aware of or involved in? Um, no. Vote on the next election. Yeah. That's a good plug. Do you have a website that uh, highlights your art, Shira? No. Please, no. 
We got to make that happen. <laughs> so people can't go uh, and see your yeah, well, you know. but hold, don't don't go rush there just yet. go to shareburgwoods.com <laughs> go there twice uh by the way that line about the talmud or about the uh, uh synagogue needing a window is from uh the talmud the babylonian talmud the book is brachot and the page is 34b Okay. Wow. It's a very specific reference. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Um, Daniel, do you have anything you want to plug? Nothing at all. Shiraberkowitz.com. No, please don't. <laughs> DanielBogard.com. <laughs> no Daniel website, Bogard. unless you're starting it now. Actually, I'm just buying the, uh, the URL as we speak. Um, well, I have, I have very little, I need to plug at this moment either. I, you know, like you Shira, um, I was just in a meeting where I realized that a, a program I'm teaching in will start a week and a half from now. Oh no. And, and I have to do like a, you know, an hour long talk at it. So I'm suddenly like, I'm like, Tara, you know, where did the summer go? Even though I spent all summer like preparing things, I'm still totally unprepared. So such is life. Oh, thank you. Good luck to you, too, in your teaching. All right, dear listeners, you've been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi and friends explore Exodus. We have only three chapters to go, all full of uh, good priestly material, we assure you. Uh, We'll be back next week. I don't think we have any reason not to be. Um, I should let you know that uh, our podcast is made possible by the kind support of Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio, that our music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a great week. <laughs>